0: And okay, turn with me to Matthew 13. We're gonna go ahead and get started. Matthew 13, we have been in a six-week study of the parables thus far, and we are entering into the last parable, the last parable, which is the parable of the dragnet. Parable of the dragnet, You can find that starting in verse 47 in Matthew 13. Uh, Would someone care to read that verse uh, specifically from 47 to verse 50? 47 to verse 50. Okay, Amen, Amen. Let's start in verse forty-seven. We usually give you some kind of contextual uh, understanding of the story or the parable that Jesus is using to convey this truth. Starting in verse forty-seven, it says again, "The kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet cast in the sea, in gathering of fish, gathering fish of every kind." And so, from the beginning, the first thing we have to bear in mind is our audience. As in all the parables Jesus used, uh, he placed spiritual truth alongside everyday uh, experiences. If you remember the definition of a parable and how uh, he would bring along an everyday personal experience and he would interlace that to convey spiritual truth. He would interlace that with truth. And so this parable is no different since the fishing industry was so huge, it was immediately relevant to uh, the hearers of his audience that Jesus would use this vehicle, the vehicle of this parable of fishing and of fishermen to convey most sober truth. And so during this period, there are primarily three different ways of fishing. And actually, the Bible references those different ways. You have in Matthew 17, 27, where Jesus is going to pay his taxes. One of the ways of fishing, he says, However, so that we do not offend them, go to the sea and throw a hook in. Throw a hook in. So there's one way of fishing. This is one way that pretty much of us, most of us is probably exercise or use this, this way of fishing, is just with a line and a hook and throwing it into the into the sea. And this is what uh, Peter went and did when Jesus told him to go and to find the shekel in the mouth of this fish. The akistron is the hook. There's another way as well that they use to fish, and we find that verse in Matthew 4.18. It says, Now as Jesus was walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net, and that word is amphiblistron, casting a net into the sea for they were fishermen this was a dragnet of sorts you've probably seen this kind of dragnet usually there's a long string to the middle of this dragnet probably looped around your wrist it's a big circle with weights around it and you would take this and you could either go to a dock you could go to the edge of a boat and you can throw this out with a. With the, uh, with the rope still attached to your wrist and it would create a big circle and it would fall with the weights. And when you begin to, t- when you begin to tug on that rope that's attached to you, all of those weights would come together and they would enclose whatever they had fallen upon. And this is, uh, this is the net that Christ spoke of in reference to his disciples being fishers of men, being fishers of men. It is this kind of dragnet and then you have the net of our passage, the text here in verse 47, that the kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet, a, a word that is completely different than the others. It is called a segene, a dragnet cast into the sea, gathering fish of every kind. It was a huge commercial net. It was meant to catch a lot of game, And usually this net was moored or fixed to a post or a stake on land. And it would also be attached to a boat as well. And so this this boat would go out and it would bring out the tension in the net. And it would start at one point of the shore on this side and make a big sweeping, like a circle, all the way across as the net is attached to the land. And it would come from, really from shore to shore. It would come. And this net had... Uh, floats on top of it so that it would stay really at the top of the sea and nets and uh, weights at the bottom so that it really had the ability to sweep everything in its path. It was a huge net, huge net, collected whatever was in its path. It says, gathering fish of every kind, not just a couple of fish, but really a multitude of fish. And I think what we are to gather from this is the sheer size of the net. A huge, all embracing all-encompassing net which had the grasp to capture whatever was in its path. And uh, that actually takes us to verse 48. And it says, And when it was filled, they drew it up on the beach. And usually they would take it, if it was moored to the beach, they would then drag that net in with a crew of people. And they would drag that net to the beach and they sat down and gathered the good fish into containers. But the bad they threw away. And so here is the next component of the fishing process. Uh, there was a drawing, a dragging in of the net, and all that it had collected in its big sweep in the sea. And after the catch was drawn in, began the, the careful, meticulous, and the very time consuming aspect of sorting fish you could think of how big this net was some people would say uh, that these nets were often something like about quarter of a mile long so just you could you could probably get a picture of how long it might take to sort out these fish uh, the good from the bad and it was business it took time it was meticulous it was very careful And uh, that's pretty straightforward. Uh, Any questions on that so far? Pretty straightforward. I think we grasped that fairly well. Now, let's get into the interpretation. Verse 49. So it will be. That whole fishing process really has eschatological significance, At the end of the age, the angels will come forth and take out the wicked from among the righteous. And many have said that that this um, applies to disciples. It does not apply to disciples. Um, If you follow the pronoun, the they, all the way throughout this, it is the same they. And this is speaking about the Lord and judgment using the agency, by the agency of angels, and he says, it will be, so it will be at the end of the age, the angels will come forth and take out the wicked from among the righteous. They will, uh, they will be the agency that the Lord uses to separate the wicked from the righteous and will throw them into the furnace of fire. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And this parable really is another pair. It is most related to the parable of the wheat and the tares. They really are a pair, though there is a difference between them, and that difference is a difference of emphasis. It is a difference of emphasis, but they essentially teach us the same truth. Remember in the parable of the wheat and the tares, the emphasis was more upon the wicked and the righteous and their coexistence as a mixed society and the presence of the kingdom of God. Uh, you remember that. This parable... Takes us right up into the end of the age, where this one, the last one started in the present evil age and it gave you a lot of, it gave, it gave you some, uh, help you, some information to understand the nature of the, of the kingdom in the present evil age. But this parable, the emphasis is on the end of the age. It is on the end of the age, after the coexisting, with the emphasis more on final judgment than anything else. Now the final judgment, An ultimate defeat of God's enemy. This is a question for you. The final judgment and ultimate defeat of God's enemies is first promised where? So many whispers. So many whispers. Genesis 3.15. Genesis 3.15. How do we understand that prophecy or that proto-evangelium as we call it? How do we understand that? Mm-hmm. Jesus crushing the head of the serpent, and collectively, uh, Jesus crushing the seed of the serpent. Right? The seed of the serpent. I think that the picture we have in this parable. Really, when we're talking about the final judgment, it is the last component. I think it's the fulfillment of the last component of Genesis 3.15. If you want to turn to Genesis 3.15 with me, some of you are probably already there. Genesis 3.15, and he says this, God speaking to the serpent says, And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed, and you and he shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. And it was because the first Adam had failed to take dominion over the serpent that God promised a last Adam to succeed where the first Adam had failed. Uh, You read even in first John. 3.8, 3 8, this very purpose, this very intention, where he says, The Son of God appeared for this purpose. To what? To destroy the works of the devil. To destroy the works of the devil. Not only did Jesus de- decisively defeat Satan and thwart his schemes in the work of redemption. But Christ will also bring Satan to an ultimate end and a final end at the end of the ages, at the end of the ages. And not only will Christ defeat Satan and his entire spiritual empire, but he will also defeat and exercise final dominion over the serpent's seed. You remember and even if you go back to uh, if you go back to uh, Matthew thirteen. We saw the serpent's seed in Matthew 13. I'll have you flipping around a little bit today. Matthew 13 and verse 38, and he says, In the field is the world, and as for the good seed, these are the sons of the kingdom, and the tares are the sons of the evil one. The sons of the evil one. And the sons are the seed of the evil one. They go all the way back to Genesis 3.15. All the way back to Genesis 15. And it is from that point that the principle of a divided humanity is established. And an unresolved conflict would exist throughout all the ages between the corporate seed of serpent and the corporate seed of the woman. Until, of course, the messianic seed appears and abolishes all opposition and accomplishes the eschatological advancement that the first Adam was supposed to accomplish. Um, Emilio actually spoke a lot about this whenever he was teaching biblical theology, and I would encourage you to go back and listen to those. You will find a lot of really good uh, information on biblical theology there. And so I think this is what this parable is a picture of. Jesus is foretelling the fulfillment of the last component of the Genesis 3.15 promise. The Genesis 3.15 promise, He will reign until all of His enemies are put under His feet, until the seed of the serpent, the wicked, are sifted with His winnowing fork and are ultimately judged. Any questions on that so far? Okay, now I want to go into with the last uh, amount, the last bit of time that we have, I want to I um, talk about a couple of different topics that I wanted to explore in our time. And they are these, the identity, you want to write this down, you can. These are my different sections that I have. And the, the first is the identification of the wicked, It says that they will take out the wicked from among the righteous. I want to know who are the wicked. Who are the wicked? We'll look at the identification of the wicked, the inescapable end of the wicked. And lastly, I want to look at the imperative to preach to the wicked the imperative to preach to the wicked under those three headings. But beginning with the identification of the wicked, who are those who will be finally sifted and judged uh, from among the righteous? And I was thinking, as, as I was thinking about this section, I was thinking, what, where could I go to demonstrate who the wicked are that will be shut out from the kingdom? I was thinking, there is no better place than our our current context the context of the parables themselves because it is here that Jesus gives the most vivid portraits of the lives of of uh, which characterize those who will be finally and forever cast away and so by doing some retracing and looking over the parables that we have already explored in some depth i believe we can actually identify not only the The kingdom embracers, but also the kingdom rejectors. And so, uh, let's look at even the first soil. The first soil. We went in, we went into this on some depth, but I want to put a different emphasis on it in this time. In verse 19, we read, When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one, comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is the one on whom the seed was sown beside the road. This is the soil where Satan snatches most of the sacred seed from the heart. And Satan will really do all that he can to ensure that his offspring will not embrace or receive the word of Christ's kingdom. Uh, The gospel of the Messiah... And not only is Satan at work to snatch the gospel seed from the heart, but also the heart of the hearer is so hard that there is no hope whatsoever of gospel penetration. You remember the, this path. It, it was that foot-trodden, beaten path that represented a hard heart. It has not even been tilled. It, the ground has not even been broken up. It's not even meant for the seed to go down and produce or bear fruit. It is a hard ground. There is no penetration of the gospel. And I think that this applies to the irreligious as well as to the religious, if you remember. It applies to those who are not just outside the church, but inside the church, where they are bystanders, they are quiet, they are disengaged, they are disinterested, they are indifferent to spiritual things. And ultimately, though they appear religious, they do not care about taking to heart what God has to say. They are not concerned with taking every thought captive. They are not concerned with obedience to the lordship of Christ. And in that last day, they will be separated from the righteous. They will be separated from the righteous. The same can be said about the second soil. Verse 20. Where he says, the one on whom seed was sown on the rocky places, this is the man who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no firm root in himself, but is only temporary. And when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he falls away. And as we said, even a couple of weeks ago, I can think of no fitting, more fitting description of mainstream Christianity. They are those who are initially thrilled about the changes that are happening in their lives, the church going, they're in the reform circles as as well as the other circles, and I think that even this parable could have more of an, an application to a, a more biblically sound kind of church. There's affliction. There's persecution. And uh, these people, they are initially thrilled about the changes. The church going, the book buying, fellowshipping with true Christians. But alas, they are the almost Christians. They are the shallow water Christians That ultimately, when the time comes for them to stand to truth, they are unwilling to risk their lives, their comfort, their safety, reputation, and well-being for the sake of Christ. Just as quick as all had begun, the new emotions, the excitement, the feelings, everything began to die as the seed was suffocated by fear, by cowardice at the possibility of suffering for righteousness' sake the word caused some conviction but reception the reception of that word was not followed by conversion it was not it was not followed by converting grace And although there was some kind of stir and outward renovation, there was no inward renewal of mind and heart. And in the last day, this seed as well, or this soil, this heart will be judged, will be sifted, will be separated from the righteous. Any questions on that? Look at the next soil. And before we do that, you know, I asked a question last time, and it was, you probably remember, what is the state of your heart when persecutions and afflictions arise because of the way you live? What is happening in your heart? Um... Is it in that moment that you tend to shy away from living boldly for the Lord Jesus Christ? Um, That you fear the consequences of the world and so you do not obediently step out in faith and stand for the Lord and exercise living faith, clinging to the promises of God in Christ and living for Him? and in this because our church we do see persecution we do have afflictions and we cannot allow the love of our own lives um we cannot allow the love of our own lives that that dynamic which if we're honest can take place at times where We need to repent of loving our lives or loving our comfort too much. We need to open the grasp of our hand. We need to fear lest we abandon the offense of the cross and the biblical cost, the cost that it takes to follow the Lord Jesus. Uh, We must not love our lives in such a way that we abandon um, the offense of the cross that we are to carry. We must cling to Christ, we must cling to Christ. Look at the third soil. Verse 22 says, And the one on whom seed was sown among the thorns. This is the man who hears the word, and the worry of the world, and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. I was thinking, as I was thinking about this, you are either the blessed man of Psalm 1, or you are the cursed man of Psalm 1. You either listen to the word of the Lord, or you listen to the word of this world. Uh, Where it says, blessed is the man who walks not in the counts of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. He does not give ear to the word of the wicked, to the word of this world. And that is so easy because the world wants you to hear what it has to say. It wants you to take hold of the word, of the promises, of the word of this world, and, and it wants you to embrace it with all of your heart and all of your mind. And you can be, all, it, honestly, you can feel the pressure of that. You've, what, what, whatever it is that you deal with on, on a daily basis or the people in your lives where hanging out with wrong company, you need to truly, you need to meditate upon the word. Uh, you need to be reminded of what the word says. The word of the Lord has to shape our minds. It has to guide us. It has to illuminate our path. And the conflict in the heart of this hearer is because they are willing to entertain competing worldviews. And we cannot entertain them. We cannot entertain a worldview. You cannot uh, hold every thought captive to the obedience of Christ if you are at the same time allowing the word of this world uh, to influence you. Um, We have to be careful. We cannot allow those. We have to be, as it says, blessed are the pure in heart. Their devotions, their loyalty is to the Lord. It is not undivided. Their loyalties are not given to the Lord and the world. You cannot have, even as Chris Beth said, you cannot have... Uh, one foot in the world and one foot in the kingdom. You know what happens if you. You know what happens if if that if that happens, right? The door shuts on you, right? That's what Chris Vest said. You'll get slammed. Uh, you'll be destroyed. You cannot be one foot in and one foot out. You cannot allow the lust of your flesh to linger for so long and keep the door of the world open to compete for your affections. Self, sin, and the world, in this heart, ultimately, they are more appealing uh, than the person and work of Christ. And in the last day, they will be separated from the righteous. Those who stumble upon the buried treasure of the kingdom and acknowledge what is being offered in the whole redemptive package all the treasure that is found in the Lord Jesus and those that are unwilling to sell all that they have and by this field will be judged, will be separated and sifted. And this is what you see. Really, you could see who the wicked are. You can identify them here. The kingdom of God, Christ is going to reign until all of his enemies are put under his feet. Uh, the wicked are those who... Do not bear fruit ultimately. They are, the, they are those who do not value the hidden treasure of the kingdom. They are those who do not value the costly pearl of the Lord Jesus Christ and all that is represented in his person and in his work and his accomplishment. They do not value those things. They value the world. And they belittle the value of Christ to the peril of their own soul. Um, I want to look next at the inescapable end of the wicked. You know, the Lord Jesus spoke more about hell more than any other figure in the Bible. And He is a compassionate compassionate God-man, a compassionate Savior to a lost and dying world. He came to this world warning them of the dangers of sin. Warning them, he, he, and he often did this, even to the Pharisees, to the wicked, the unbelieving. And he also spoke more about the subject of hell, more than the subject of hell, than the subject of heaven. And what he discloses here is that one day, an eschatological separation of the wicked from the righteous, as well as ultimately the wicked from God for all of eternity, um, When you think about hell, what are the words that come to your mind? The devil. Torment, eternal torment. Away from the presence of God. God's wrath. Darkness. Justice. Justice. Weeping and gnashing of teeth. Not in a favorable sense. That's true. That's true. God is, he is omnipresent. But his favorable presence will be away from the wicked for all of eternity. They will see the presence of his justice. No grace. There are no more words, I believe, more feared and hated by mankind than those which describe the habitation of the damned. The words you just used to describe the the ultimate state of the wicked are truly terrible words. Uh, they're words which we despise in some sense. Uh, God is completely just, but the words are terrible which describe their awful words of the judgment of God about the place He has made for them to dwell for all of eternity. It is accurate to describe... Their state as one of eternal despair, some words that I thought of, eternal despair, conscious misery, mind-saturating hopelessness, endless gloom, thick darkness, all-consuming anguish, the wicked will be overcome with the fires of God's wrath like a pile of wood that is set ablaze in a bonfire. There are no doctors in hell to patch up your wounds." There are no psychologists in hell to visit for your debilitating depression. And there are no drugs to numb your devastated conscience that is going to gnaw away at itself like a worm that never dies. One of the many terrible thoughts that will be foreverly and uh, and eternal, foreverly, eternally burned into the minds of the wicked is this word, I believe, Forever. Forever forever in in relation to eternal life there is no better word but in relation to eternal punishment forever is the most terrifying word i believe it is a most dreadful word in relation to hell And in the end, all analogies and metaphors fall short of describing the reality of the awful judgment of uh, and the anger of God. Psalm 90 verse 11 says this, Who understands the power of your anger and your fury according to the fear that is due you? Who understands it properly? Um... I think one of our failures in worshiping and fearing God properly and rightly is our inability to experientially understand His power and His wrath. God is holy, and His power is mounted up against all that is unholy. The unregenerate should fear and tremble at such an enemy as Almighty God Himself. Richard Baxter and his track called A Call to the Unconverted. Actually, Brother Joseph Urban mentioned this track a few weeks back. He says this, look at the plight of the wicked. He says, You are under the guilt of all the sins you ever committed and under the wrath of God and the curse of his law. You are bond slaves to the devil and daily employed in his work against the Lord, yourselves and others. You are spiritually dead and deformed. You are unfit for any holy work and do nothing that is truly pleasing to God. You are without promise of assurance or His protection and live in continual danger of His justice, not knowing what hour you may be snatched away to hell and most certain to be lost if you die in that condition and nothing short of conversion can prevent it. Jesus said, unless you repent, you will all likewise Perish. The only alternative to repenting is perishing. And it is better to prize heaven now than to belittle its value and inherit hell forever. And there will be a time when the very passage of time, the door of time, this window of opportunity will close forever. And all will be engulfed with eternity. That will be the very quality of the time, the duration of the time that we spend without change. And so, brethren, we don't have much time left. You don't have much time left. This world does not have much time left. First John says this world is passing away. It is passing away. The, the, as the old great hymn says, "The sands of time are sinking. They are sinking, and there are only few grains of sand left in the hourglass of your life." Only a few. Knowing this is true, how should it change the way we live? absolutely we should be gripped we should be gripped with that knowledge with a sense of urgency what else yes you know that's actually that's actually the next verse uh to verse uh, to psalm 90:11 that who understands the Power of the anger of God. Oh, teach us to number our days, to understand them. Brother Robert. Pastor Lynn said something like that a couple weeks ago in his sermon that we need to live in eternity. Right, Pastor? Something to that effect. If you live in eternity, that will affect how you live in this world. If you live in eternity, if your minds are constantly fixed on that world, it will change the way you live. And the last thing I want to look at is the imperative to preach to the wicked. The imperative. And I think that can ultimately be broken down in two different ways. And that is the command to preach. That word imperative can mean the command to preach to the wicked, as well as the absolute necessity to preach. It is imperative to preach to the wicked. There is a necessity laid upon us. My question is, are we commanded to evangelize? We are. Where are we commanded to evangelize in Scripture? What'd you say? Matthew 28, Luke Matthew 28, Luke 24. All my passages I just had down. Where else? Mark sixteen fifteen. I think so. I think um, if we look at these, you know, turn with me to Matthew 28. Turn with me to Matthew 28. This verse is significant because it speaks about the presence of the Lord Jesus. His Spirit. And it says this, And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Even to the end of the age. If, you'll, if, you, if you remember in our parable, it says, So it will be at the end of the age that there will be an eschatological separation, that we will be preaching and evangelizing all the way up until that time. He will be with us until the end of the age. He will be encouraging us. His presence, He will go with us. His power, uh, His Spirit illuminating our way and leading us, guiding us, strengthening us, encouraging us. The Lord Jesus will be with us in all of these things. And Mark Chapter uh, 16, verse 15, he said to them, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. Even though there's a textual variant here, it still uh, it's still, nevertheless is true about uh, the, the Great Commission. Uh, Luke, he says this in Luke 24, 46 through 47, he says, And he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations, to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. That the accomplishment seen and the dying and the rising again of the Son of God would issue forth in the proclamation of, of, the, of, uh, of repentance for forgiveness from the mouths of the Lord Jesus' disciples. From the mouths of his disciples, and they can do no other because they have experienced the undeniable event of the crucifixion, the death, and the reckon, uh, the uh, the um, the uh, resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ Himself, being witnesses of that. And you'll notice there that they will be preaching and declaring re- repentance for forgiveness of sins you see the necessity of repentance for forgiveness proverbs 28:13 says he who conceals his transgressions will not prosper but he f- who confesses and forsakes them will find compassion he will find compassion there is uh, there is a radical reaction expected among those who come into contact with the kingdom of God, and that is to sell all things, give up all things in order to buy and possess the kingdom of God and the Lord Jesus Christ, His gospel. John 17, 18, and Jesus, G- Jesus' prayer to the Father, speaking about the world, that we are not of the world, even as He is not of the world, yet He is sending us in the world. As the Father has sent Him into the world... I also have sent them into the world to be on mission for the Lord Jesus Christ, to be his ambassadors. In Acts 1a, you you have here, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit uh, has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest part of the earth. Lastly, turn with me to Romans 10. Any questions? Any comments? Not only do we have a command to go out and preach the gospel, that it is sinful not to evangelize. It is sinful it is in direct disobedience to the command that Christ has given us. But we have an absolute necessity to preach. There is a burden laid upon us. When Paul says, woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. Even his love for the lost was in such a way. You see, even Romans 9 where he says, I am telling the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart, for I could wish that myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. I could wish that they could be saved. is the selfless desire of Paul to lose his own life, even for the sake of those who are lost, there is a, there is a, a necessity, a burden laid upon us to preach, and you should feel that. Even this weekend, you know what? I, I just got so much of just my meditation on hell this weekend. every time I see fire, I think about hell. And uh, during when we were in Mexico, we had bonfires with logs. I could barely wrap my arms around huge logs thrown into this fire. It was probably like this high or so, just a huge fire of logs and just burning. And the only thing I could think about is my family being those logs who were weeping and wailing and screaming because of the terrors of the judgment of God that are going to rain down upon them for all of eternity. And I could hear their voices in there. I could hear my family's voices. I could hear the world being engulfed in the flames of God's wrath. And I was set to tremble before these flames. As I was talking to Jai about this, I was set to tremble. We were even looking over at the fire pit at Jai's the other night. And the just embers glowing before us, before representing, I believe, in some sense, just the, all the multitudes that will be damned in hell and have you no concern for them. Have you no concern for them? Can you easily go about your day without any concern for the eternal estate of those who will be damned, and justly so because of their sin? But you have the gospel that you can preach, and do you care more about your comfort than their eternal comfort? Romans ten fourteen. Look at the look, look at how the Lord Jesus has designed to use us as vehicles of the gospel where he says how will they call on him in whom they have not believed and how will they believe in him in whom they have not heard and then he says and how will they hear without a preacher hearing precedes believing how will they hear without a preacher God, in His wisdom, has, 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 has planned to use these fallen vessels and to place within us this treasure in clay pots, as it were, to carry the gold of the, of the treasures of the kingdom of God out into the world to those who do not have this treasure, to those who will be lost if they are not saved. This says, how will they hear without a preacher? There must, someone must go. Someone must preach. Someone must be sent. And there must be a desire within you to go and for the nations, your neighbor, to hear the gospel. There must be a passion within you. But even as Jesus says, is that if you don't, if you have not apprehended how much you have been forgiven, you will not Love much. Those who are forgiven little, they love little. And that's because they don't understand how much they have been forgiven. And so the way that they love is it represents their understanding of the significance of forgiveness to them. And we have, if we connect the dots even to verse 17, it says, Faith then comes by hearing. In hearing by the word of Christ, proclaimed by a preacher. If we connect, it's proclaimed by a disciple. Proclaimed by an evangelist. Proclaimed by those who have received this treasure and are filled with joy and desire of, of the nations or the lost Believing and possessing this treasure themselves. Every time that you share the saving gospel with someone, there is a possibility that you could save their soul from hell. Every time. That's what Paul said. I became all things to all men, that by all means I may save some. That I may save some. And that is speaking just the instrumentality of believers in preaching the gospel and the necessity laid upon us as the design that God has chosen to use in the world to save sinners and to apply the gospel to their hearts. I pray that you would truly meditate upon the imperative There's people in this church that are lost. That come here day in and day out. Family members that come here that are lost. They are Christians in name, but not in nature. Um, But I pray that you would bear in mind and really contemplate and consider what you have received in the Lord Jesus Christ. Consider what you have been saved from. And take heed to the promise or the command that we have been given by the Lord Jesus Himself and His desire for the world to be saved from sin. Those whom the Father is giving Him, that He has chosen us to meet them with the gospel. It's a glorious a glorious undertaking that God has given us in order to save the flock of the Lord Jesus Christ, those whom God has chosen to save. Well, let me just pray for us uh, before we get out. Heavenly Father, O Lord, you are worthy of praise. Your Son is worthy of glory. We pray that the Lamb who was slain would receive the reward of his suffering. I pray that you would make us jealous for your glory. Make us jealous for your glory. And I pray, O Lord, that you would inflame the desires to see the lost saved within us for the glory of our triune God. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.